Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 28, Numbers chapters 23 and 24. We continue the story of Balaam and Balak, which is a real theological feast all in itself. And some of the critical biblical principles that will be counted upon now as foundational material and the remainder of the Holy Scriptures are here set out before us. And not the least of these is that a false prophet can at times be correct. Further, that God himself may use this false prophet for his purposes, even having direct contact with him. Now, Balaam was a false prophet in every sense of the word. He was a diviner, a seer, a magician. That he knew the God of Israel was to be expected because he ran in the circle of the gods. We're reminded in this story also that the evil one can counterfeit and mimic and make things look just as though what was occurring was a blessing from Yehovah instead of what it really is, deception. Now last week we discussed the incident with Bilam and his donkey, a talking donkey that could see the angel of the Lord standing in his path, but Bilam could not. Because although he was familiar and close to the spiritual world, he was actually spiritually blind. Great lessons were laid out, including the reality that when the path of our desires sometimes seems blocked, there might well be a divine reason for it. And the wise man will pause and look for the Lord in it and not consider the one who only seems to be the roadblock is necessarily the problem. Now we also saw that the Lord is only willing to go so far in intruding into our free will. Over and over, Yehovah told Balaam that he did not want him to go to King Balak of Moab to do the work of cursing Israel for that king. Yet, Balaam kept going back to God, hoping each time that he could persuade God into changing his mind. Balaam was just not going to take no for an answer. He understand. A magician negotiating with a god was just the standard method of divining then. And Balaam would have had no concept of what to do and how to communicate with the Lord if it wasn't in the only manner, manner he was familiar with. And so Yehovah allowed Balaam to follow his free will, even though it put him at odds with the divine will. And yet, through all of this, God accomplished that which he had intended. That Israel would not be cursed. And in fact, the blessing that God had long ago pronounced upon Israel would wind up being affirmed from Bilaam's mouth. Therefore, we see another foundational God principle established. The Lord will miraculously accomplish his plan often working through men's free will. Now, this is a mystery Perhaps as great, I think, as creation or salvation itself. 
How is it possible that the Lord can bring about his will through another's completely free will, and more often than not, that person's free will is against the plan of God? How can that happen? Yet not only do we see it in the Bible as a principle, but also as believers, I think most of us have seen that in our own lives. I have. Sometimes almost daily. As we look around us in our incredibly short lifespans, we have seen the world marching inexorably towards an end that the Lord has predetermined in advance from eternity past and told us that what would be, and yet he uses the free will and plans of both the evil and the righteous to achieve it all, only forcefully intervening on the rarest of occasions. Amazing. Let's reread Numbers chapter 23, starting with verse 13, and take it on to the end. That will be page 177 in your complete Jewish Bibles. Numbers 23, starting at verse 13. Balak said to him, All right, come with me to another place where you can see them. You will only see some of them, not all, but you can curse them for me from over there. So he took them through the field of Sophim to the top of the Pisgah range, built seven seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And Bilam said to Balak, stand here by your burnt offering while I go over there for a meeting. Well, Adonai met Bilam and put a word in his mouth and said, go back to Balak and speak as I tell you. He came to him and stood by his burnt offering with all the princes of Moab. And Balak asked him, What did Adonai say? Then Balaam made his pronouncement. Get up, Balak, and listen. Turn your ears to me, son of Zippor. God's not a human who lies, or a mortal who changes his mind. When he says something, he'll do it. When he makes a promise, he'll fulfill it. Look, I'm ordered to bless. When he blesses, I can't reverse it. No one has seen guilt in Yaakov, Jacob, or perceived perversity in Israel. Adonai, their God's with them and acclaimed as king among them. God who brought them out of Egypt gives them the strength of a wild ox. Thus one can't put a spell on Jacob. No magic will work against Israel. It can now be said of Jacob and Israel... What is this that God has done? He's, here is a people rising up like a lioness. Like a lion, he rears himself up. He will not lie down till he eats up the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. And Balak said to Bilam, Well, obviously you won't curse them, but at least don't bless them. However, Bilam answered Balak, Didn't I warn you that I must do everything Adonai says? And Balak said to Bilam, Come. I will now take you to another place. Maybe it will please God for you to curse them for me over there. And Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, overlooking the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, Build me seven altars here. Prepare me seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam said and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Well, what we have just read... is the second oracle from God in this story as presented through the mouth of Bilal. 
Now, the first oracle, the one we studied last week in the verses of first part of Numbers 23, essentially expressed Israel's present situation. That is, Israel was blessed by God above all other nations to the point it was not even to be considered as one of the nations, at least as we commonly think of it. In that first oracle... Bilam sees just how blessed and privileged Israel is, and so hopes that he can, in some undefined way, partake himself in Israel's blessing. Bilam ends the first oracle from last week saying, May I die the death of the upright or the righteous, and may my fate be like theirs. Now, allow me to remind you that this blessing of Israel is but another way of restating the Abrahamic covenant. It would be quite appropriate for us to understand that what Bilam means by all this, even though he would not have fully understood it, is that he would like to be included in the blessing of Israel that is the Abrahamic covenant. Of course, the $64,000 question for us is, how can a non-Israelite, a Gentile, like Bilam, be included under the blessings of Israel's most exclusive covenant with God? Now, this is only one of several times that Gentiles in the Bible will express a desire to be put under the covering and benefits of Israel's covenants. And a later and quite famous example was Ruth, a Gentile woman, who said, and we see it in Ruth 1.16, of her desire to be joined to Israel's covenants under their God, your people shall be my people, your God my God. By the way, notice an interesting coincidence between the Ruth story and the Bilam Balak episode we're studying. King Balak was king of who? Moab. And Ruth was from Moab. Of course, I say coincidence tongue-in-cheek. but Now, in this second oracle of God, made through Bilam, a central point is made to the entire story of this Mesopotamian diviner and the king of Moab, and it's this. Whereas... All other religions, all false of course, use magic and sorcery to discover the will of the gods. The God of Israel makes his will known by means of his prophets. And Jehovah does this by direct oracle, not by means of some magical omens, as was the universal practice of this era. Now, the Hebrews were given a great resource by the Lord that the rest of the world didn't have direct revelation from God. The rest of the world, because they'd been, they had given up obedience to the Creator and were, in essence, worshipping the evil one, were trying by their own means to discover the will of their many gods. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has not left men who seek after him in that position. We have the Holy Spirit within us for a direct connection to the God of the universe 
and we have his word of truth in our hands. Our job is not to determine what is truth and what is not in our Bibles, because it's all the truth. Our job is simply to accept it as truth and then to obey Our challenge is also to discover then how to apply that truth to our lives and to our relationship with the Creator. You know, we don't have to wonder how the world began, where mankind came from, because we're told it. We don't have to wonder at our future, because we're also told that. You know, as a good friend of mine said in a recent magazine article, men who choose to believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth have a foundation for understanding their origin and purpose and consummation of life. Men who choose to reject that statement go through life like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't even there. Knowing where they came from, rather never knowing where they came from, never knowing where they're going, and they don't know how to live in between those two termini. That's a pretty good statement. Sums it up well. God's prophets, you see, were the end of magical omens for those who trust in him. Israel was in the earliest stages of just starting to learn this reality. And the very one who God was using at this moment to make his declaration to his people was a Gentile named Balaam, who himself would completely miss the point. Now let me point out, before someone else in here does for me, that indeed... There was a a special kind of divining tool, if you would, permitted for Israel for a while, called the Urim and Tumim, which which the high priest of Israel carried on his ephod. The concept, however, was never for those stones to determine truth. Rather, it was simply to indicate God's will in a yes or no matter where there was a godly choice provided. Now, I can't tell you exactly how those two stones worked, and there's a lot of disagreement among the Hebrew sages uh, about this. Nor can I with certainty tell you why God operated like that for a while. But my conjecture, conjecture is that we will often see Israel permitted, even instructed by God, to use a ritual or a tool that is very much like a ritual or tool used by the heathen. And I surmise that the reason for this is that Israel would have been utterly confused if the Lord required them to instantly unlearn every customary cultural aspect of the known world, the cultural aspects they had all generally lived by, in favor of brand new and completely unique ones. You just can't do that overnight. Certainly in the law, the Torah handed down on Mount Sinai, a new and unique culture of the kingdom of heaven had been ordained. But there was no way Israel would immediately adopt every aspect of it. And the Lord will knew it when he gave it to them. 
You know, we as modern believers are in a very similar position. We can only grow so fast. And the church, consisting of so many varied cultures, can only absorb at so, so fast of a rate. Okay. Thus God reveals to us progressively when the time's right, as he determines it. You know, it astounds me that the very thing Balaam pronounced 3,300 years ago, and what it is that Ruth stated a couple hundred years or so after that, this concept that if Gentiles wanted to be included in God's blessing of mankind, it had to be done via the Abrahamic covenant of Israel, that only now, today, is a growing but small segment of the church finally beginning to even grasp it. Jehovah says that our relationship with him is based on Israel's covenants and then, of course, what sprung from them. And yet, within just a few years after our Savior's death and resurrection, the church created doctrines that denied that very thing. Only now, today, with the return of Israel to her land, has a movement begun within the body of believers to undo this errant theology. But it had to wait for the Lord's timing for our blindness to finally be lifted. In verse 13, King Balak decides that maybe another setting might induce Bilam to curse the Israelites. He chooses a place called Sedeh Sophim, which literally means Mountain of the Watchmen. See, this is a lookout post. But its primary use in that day, was as an astronomical observation point and a place for watching the flight of birds. See, stars and birds were both standard signs and omens in that era. Now, as this place is also described as a, a bema, all right, a high place, altars were built and gods were worshipped up there because gods were always worshipped on hilltops. Okay, This isn't unlike the way cathedrals have been built throughout the ages, whereby they were often the tallest structures that just stretched up towards the sky. Everything pointed towards the heavens. Therefore, a cathedral also typically served as the local watchtower, a place from which believers were called to worship. Eventually, bells were placed up there. And then, of course, due to its architectural strength, it was often a place of sanctuary. Well, Balak points out that from the first hilltop location where he took Balaam, only a portion of this enormous encampment of the Israelites could be viewed. But from this second place, unfortunately, even a smaller amount could be seen. Now, the thought is that perhaps Balaam was intimidated. And so by cursing fewer people, it might be more to his liking. And included within all of this is the hope that the God that Bilam has been dealing with also might find that, that the conditions are more favorable to grant the king of Moab his request that Israel be cursed. Well, of course, the result of that second attempt goes equally as bad for King Bilak as the first one. And Bilam again follows Jehovah's instructions to bless and not curse his people Israel. Now notice as well that the Lord directs Balaam's speech 
at King Balak. And the Lord says, listen up, Balak, I have something to tell you. And immediately, yet another God principle is declared. The Lord is not capricious. He doesn't say things and then not follow through with them. And along with that, in verse 19, God says, I am not a Ben Adam, meaning a son of man. This is just another way of saying that the Lord's not a human being or a mere mortal that's always changing their mind according to circumstances. Now understand, this was really strange to the ears of Balaam and Balak. I mean, what God didn't constantly change their minds? I mean, capriciousness is the nature of the gods and goddesses. Even more, this was the era when most kings were seeing themselves as the incarnation of one god or another. So for the Lord to declare that he's no son of man throws a real curveball into this situation for him. Now that Yehovah has clearly established some important aspects of his nature and character, through Bilam, the Lord makes it clear again that what he blesses no man can reverse. Therefore, Israel is safe and Moab really needs to steer clear of this. Well, quickly, another theological principle is established in verse 23. The Lord has neither established magic, nor does he permit divination as an acceptable way for his people to deal with him. Within Israel, it is simply not to exist. This is the expression of the Lord's law and his idea, his, his ideals. Unfortunately, that wasn't reality for Israel. Because in reality, the Hebrews constantly turned to divination and idolatry. And for this abomination, terrible divine disciplines were constantly laid upon them. Well, the second oracle from God ends with describing Israel as having the strength and ferocity of a lion and poetically describes Israel as destroying their enemies. Well, the second attempt to curse Israel didn't go any better than that first time. And the blessing this time was even more powerful and pointed. And the obviously flustered King Balak blurts out to Balaam, look, if you're not going to curse them for me, at least don't bless them. And Balaam repeats, he has no choice in the matter. Well, King Balak, not used to having people not do his bidding, still didn't give up. Let's give it another try, he says to Balaam. And he volunteers to take Bilam to another high place, the peak of Pure. Now, we're going to find in subsequent chapters that this, this is, of course, another pagan high place dedicated to the god Baal. Now, just as the Lord told Bilam on a number of occasions that he didn't want Bilam going to Balak, Balak has now been told on a number of occasions that God's not going to change his mind about this. Okay. Again, we see the pagan mind of that era at work. King Balak believes that he manipulates the gods. And that perhaps he just needs to appease this god of Israel a little bit more. So, off to the peak of Peor they go, and the seven altars that are there have seven sacrifices placed on them. And then this whole useless effort begins all over again. 
Let's turn our Bibles to Numbers chapter 24 and continue. Complete Jewish Bible, page 178. When Bilam saw that it pleased Adonai to bless Israel, he didn't go, as at the other times, to make use of divination, but instead looked out towards the desert. And Bilam raised his eyes, and he saw Israel encamp tribe by tribe. And then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he made his pronouncement. This is the speech of Bilam, son of Beor, the speech of the man whose eyes had been opened. The speech of him who hears God's words, who sees what Shaddai sees, who has fallen, yet has open eyes. How lovely are your tents, Jacob, your, camp, your encampments, Israel. They spread out like valleys, like gardens by the riverside, like succulent aloes planted by Adonai, like cedar trees next to the water. Water will flow from their branches. Their seed will have water aplenty. Their king will be higher than Arag, and his kingdom lifted high. God who brought them out of Egypt gives them the strength of a wild ox. They will devour the nations opposing them, break their bones, pierce them with their arrows. When they lie down, they crouch like a lion, or like a lioness. Who dares to rouse it? Blessed be all who bless you. Cursed be all who curse you. Bilam blazed with fury against Bilami, struck his hands together and said to Bilam, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but here you have done nothing but bless them three times already. Now you had better escape to your own place. I had planned to reward you very well, but now Adonai has deprived you of that payment. And Bilam answered Balak, Didn't I tell the messengers that you sent me that even if King Balak would give me his palace full of silver and gold, I could not of my own accord go beyond the word of Adonai to do either good or bad? That what Adonai said is what I'd say. But now that I'm going back to my own people, come. I will warn you what this people will do to your people in the Akhirit Hayamin, the world to come, the end of time, the latter days. So he made this pronouncement. This is the speech of Bilam, son of Beor, the speech of the man whose eyes have been opened. The speech of him who hears God's words. He knows what Elyon knows. Who sees what Shaddai sees. Who has fallen yet has open eyes. I see him now. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not soon. A star will step forth from Jacob. A scepter will arise from Israel. To crush the corners of Moab. Destroy all descendants of Shaitan. His enemies will be his possession. Edom and Seir, possessions. Israel will do valiantly. From Jacob will come someone who will rule. And he will destroy what's left of the city. He saw Amalek. And he made this pronouncement. First among nations was Amalek. Destruction will be its end. He saw the Kimi. And he made this pronouncement. Though your dwelling is firm and your nest set on a rock... Kine will be wasted while captive to Asher, Assyria. Finally, he made this pronouncement. Oh no, who can live when God does this? But ships will come from the coast of Kittim 
to subdue Asher, meaning Assyria, and subdue Eber. But they too will come to destruction. Then Balaam got up, left, returned to his home, and King Balak went his way. King Balak thinks maybe the third time will be the charm. But it wasn't so. Balaam was starting to catch on. Finally recognizing that the Lord is pleased to bless Israel, Balaam ceased his divinations and stopped looking for omens. Wherever this exact place was that they went to and viewed Israel, Balak and Balaam could apparently see most of the Israelite encampment. Surely this is what Balak had in mind because everyone in those days understood that you can only curse what you see. Now what happens next is a bit different than before. Up to now we're told that the Lord God literally put words into Balaam's mouth. But this time the Spirit of God comes to rest upon Bilaam. And so Bilaam speaks not what God has directly told him to speak, but what Bilaam now knows to be the truth and the reality. Do you see that subtle difference between those two? What we have occurring with the presentation of the third oracle is a little more of what we find in the New Testament, whereby it is a man who has God's Spirit upon him teaching a lesson or addressing a problem and doing the teaching or instruction in his own words. Before it was as though the Lord was literally either controlling Bilaam's mouth or whispering into Balaam's ear, each and every sound and utterance Balaam was to make, there was no room for an ad lib. Therefore, hear this, please, particularly as concerns the apostles of the New Testament, we don't get perfect words from them, but we do get perfect principles. Each of the apostles' personalities and temperaments is reflected in what they say and the words they speak reflect their own minds. Now the Lord taught their minds. So what they speak as theological principle is absolute truth. But that doesn't mean that they necessarily explained it in astounding ways. Jesus Christ spoke in astounding ways. Yeshua HaMashiach spoke words that were so powerful, perfect, and poignant that men marveled and just went slack-jawed at them. It was declared that no man has ever spoken like this. The apostles were not as articulate as Jesus because they were not God. But Jesus was. Yeshua could transcend the unexplainable and make it understandable to those who had ears to listen. A phrase he used a lot. 
Now, I take this little momentary detour because I want you to understand how incorrect it is to hang on Paul or Peter's every word as though it was Jesus speaking, to dissect their sentences, to pretend that their words were outside and above their context and their culture. And this is what has led to widely divergent doctrines within the church. Especially the highly trained Rabbi Paul was assigned this difficult job of explaining to Jews that although the Torah remained fully intact, the advent of Yeshua elevated its meaning to an even higher plane. To the Gentiles, he tried to explain heavenly things. To non-Hebrew people who didn't have the benefit of growing up as God's people, Paul spoke things that these Gentiles knew nothing of. But any Jewish child would have known much of it because they started studying Torah at five or even six years old. It would be like trying to teach algebra to students who had never even first learned basic math. And then, for Jew and Gentile alike, Paul attempted to define just what all that the coming of the Messiah meant, how to apply it to their lives. Paul went through very difficult gyrations in trying to form phrases and thoughts to explain what mere words really cannot. Things that we all still struggle with. Things like what actually happens at our salvation. What is eternal security? What place does our works and our deeds have with our relationship with God? Yet that was Paul's difficult divine assignment. Unlike the Old Testament prophets, or even like Bilam, who at first had the Lord quite literally placed these precise divine words in his mouth and he was told not to vary from it. Paul's words were generally his own, although they were God-inspired. So in the saga of Bilam, we see both sides of the coin. We see examples of inspiration, and we see examples of revelation. On the one side, we see the Old Testament type of prophet who, was, who has God's words put into his mouth by means of direct and conscious revelation from the Lord. On the other hand, we have the more New Testament type of prophet, the teacher of the word, a word, a kind of scripture, if you would that has already been given to man by others who came before him. Or as a result of things that the Lord has taught to him. A teacher whose mind is inspired by perfect godly truth, but whose words are mostly his own, and therefore they're not necessarily perfectly precise. Now all that I just told you about this being belongs word from his own mind are confirmed in verse 3 when it says this is the speech or word of Bilam of a man whose eyes have been opened of him who hears Jehovah's words some of our Bibles like the complete Jewish Bible will say in verse 4 that these are the words of one who has fallen 
that really gives us the wrong idea. Because among evangelicals, that means somebody who's sinned. What this really means is someone who's fallen prostrate before the Lord. Now, later in verse 4, we hearken back to before Moses, to a time before the Lord told us his personal, formal name. It goes back to a time when men knew God as El Shaddai. Our complete Jewish Bible has it right. Most versions will say, knew God as Almighty, or something like that. Remember, we now know, due to recent findings, that El Shaddai means God of the mountain. And of course, that's the exact context of our story at this point. After all, this was the third mountain peak Bilam had been escorted to that he might put a curse onto Israel. Now, the next several verses have Bilam declaring how pleased the Lord is with Israel, how powerful they are in him. They will even be more abundant, he says, than they are now, and that the Lord will never cease to watch over them and bless them. And in verse 9, we get the message that has often been repeated in this class and ought to be repeated every day among the church. Blessed are they who bless you and cursed are they who curse you. I've heard it said that it's really a misuse of Scripture to apply the blessed are they who bless you and cursed are they who curse you as, as a demand upon the church to care for Israel and the Jewish people because it only applied to Abraham's immediate family and Israel wasn't even created yet. But clearly, here, those same words that were spoken in Abraham's day obviously applies directly to the entire nation of Israel, doesn't it? There was Israel spread out before him. There can be no doubt anymore to whom the protected group is. It's Israel. And the warning is directed towards Gentiles. So write this verse number down somewhere for the next time somebody tries to dispute all this with you. Take them right here all right, to, to numbers and show them. Well, King Bilak is now very angry and he glares at Balaam, and he slaps his hands together in disgust, and he tells Balaam to Adios, get out of here. And that Balaam will indeed impart empty-handed, because he didn't do what he was hired to do, which was to curse Israel. Now understand, this is a terribly serious blow to King Balak. He will now have to fight Israel, if he determines to fight him at all, without the aid of Israel being weakened by means of their being cursed and or abandoned by their God. But just as it seemed that it couldn't get any worse for King Bilak, it did. Because not only doesn't Balaam curse, but also blesses Moab's enemies. And Balaam goes on to describe this rather unpleasant fate that awaits the people of Moab and other Gentiles in the Transjordan and around the land of Canaan. Again, the words are Balaam's, but he's inspired of God to say them. His eyes have been opened. He sees the truth. The words that come from his mouth have this wonderfully messianic, 
hope in them. And they're to take place well into the future, the Akhirit Hayamim. Along with it is a prophecy of Israel's soon coming military victories. You know, it's a key biblical principle that often when prophecy is pronounced, it happens not once, but twice and sometimes three times. It happens in the near future, again in the far future, and sometimes it can happen at an intermediate time as well. And this is especially so as pertains to prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah. And so we get these words that are so familiar to us, particularly as we approach this time of year. A star arises from Jacob. A scepter comes forth from Israel. Kings are often referred to as stars in the ancient Middle East. And this king from Jacob is going to inflict grave harm on the residents of Moab. Today, of course, we're speaking of the kingdom of Jordan, by the way. Edom will be taken prisoner. Amalek will be wiped out forever. Now, verse 17 gives us a little bit of a problem in trying to identify just who this Seth or Shate is. Now, now new scholarship thinks this actually ought to be translated as shoot. Certainly, this isn't referring to the immediate family of Adam and Eve. There's some recent findings of Egyptian documents that speak of of a people around the area of Moab, at approximately this same time frame that were called the Shutu. And almost certainly, this is what's being referred to here, by the way. Well, anyway, in verse 18... Seir and Edom are identified as one place because Seir is located within Edom. Now, beginning in verse 20, things shift a little bit. Whereas the Israeli military was the cause of the demise of Edom and Moab and Shut, the demise of the listed several nations in general, as a prophecy, are not ascribed to any military action by the Hebrews. Therefore, we're to take this as divine judgment brought upon them by some other means, maybe some other nations. Most of the names of peoples and places used here are pretty difficult to identify. Katim is thought to be an island in the Mediterranean. Ashur almost for sure means the Assyrian Empire, although Ashur may be used to even indicate modern-day Assyria, which we call Iraq. And by the way, the Assyrian Empire and Assyria are not quite the same thing. Now, it's currently thought, by the way, interestingly enough, that the Ketim are very likely the earlier name for the Philistines. And that these same people also go by the generic name of Sea Peoples, as they come from the west by means of the Mediterranean Sea. And around 1200 B.C., Egyptian records indicate that the Sea Peoples attacked on the coastal plain of Canaan, then moved south and attacked Eber, who lived in the upper part of the Sinai. So, very likely, this this whole thing here is prophesying the coming of the ferocious Philistines, who would be a terrible bother to all of their neighbors, and eventually to Israel. Well, the saga of Balaam and Balak ends with them just simply parting company, each heading back their own way. I'd like to conclude this week with a thought 
for all of us to take with us as we leave tonight. One that I know many of you probably will all readily accept, but others may not be so sure. I think that the saga of Bilam and King Balak is a prophetic tale of the Gentile church. Bilam is a Gentile. He is a spiritual man. In fact, he's a God-fearer, isn't he? He knows the God of Israel. He absolutely believes in and pays attention to the God of Israel. He hears from the God of Israel. He knows the God of Israel. He just can't bring himself, though, to dismiss his long heritage of Gentile traditions and customs that are so at odds with the Torah and the other scriptural commands of Yehovah. Balaam is a spiritually oriented Gentile who knows Israel has a powerful God. And he has been given personal instruction from this God. On just what his relationship is to be with Israel. A relationship of uniting with them. Blessing them based on God's covenants with them. God makes it clear to Balaam that he's already blessed Israel. It's a done deal. And as such, it can't be overturned by any man or Gentile nation. God will never cease to see Israel as a blessed people. He will never permanently curse Israel, and he will oppose anybody who tries to curse Israel. God tells Bilam that Israel has a glorious future ahead, because they are blessed of God. Bilam says, Now I realize all this. I want to die in the righteousness that the people of Israel have been given by their God. And yet we find Bilam over and over again being warned off by Yehovah as he journeys to Moab to do service to God's enemy. Somehow... There is this intellectual disconnect. Balaam describes it as a blindness that finally lifted. And he could see the truth. He just couldn't grasp that he cannot do a service for a Gentile nation whose intent is to weaken or harm Israel and at the same time properly honor and be in harmony with the God of Israel. That didn't stop him from trying on numerous occasions. Bilam is an amazing model of the Gentile-dominated church. Can you see that? Okay. The mainstream institutional church says that Israel no longer has a glorious future. Instead, that glorious future now belongs to the Gentile church. The most ubiquitous and accepted church doctrines say that God has abandoned Israel, rejected his people for all time, cursed them, and blessed we Gentile believers in their stead. And the church is so horribly wrong on this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is utterly self-destructive foolishness to think that we can do anything but work to actively bless Israel. Believers, you know haven't even always had 
a clear-cut opportunity to do so, but we do now. Israel wasn't reborn as a nation until a mere 60 years ago. So there was no nation of Israel for us to love and defend. Obviously, during the centuries of Jewish dispersion, especially prior to the rebirth of Israel, it should have been the church's unequivocal duty to stand with them and befriend those Jewish families when they needed us the most, but we didn't. We must never assist or lend moral support and thus strengthen Israel's sworn enemies as Balaam intended to do and then call it even-handed or loving and kind and think that somehow this isn't cursing Israel. Bilam wasn't going to personally harm Israel. He wasn't going to pick up a sword. He was merely going to assist Israel's enemy, Moab, and then go home. God told him if he did that, he'd have to kill him. We can't send supplies and money to the Palestinians. We can't apply political pressure upon Israel on their behalf. And then somehow claim that the God of the Bible sanctions this as a worthy and holy cause. We must not join with the secular world to push Israel into dividing the land that was coveted to them by the Lord or insist that Israel deed to the Muslims as their capital the very place our Messiah is going to set foot again when he returns from heaven. We can't allow Islam to maintain a pagan shrine and worship center where the temple of God once existed and will exist again. And then say that because our heartfelt intent is peace, therefore doing all these things must be right in our Lord's eyes. If Balaam can wake up and see the light, then so can the church. If Balaam can finally understand that Israel is not like the Gentile nations, that God is not a human who changes his mind, that when he makes a promise or a covenant, he will fulfill it, and that the Lord himself will curse anyone who curses his special people, Israel, then so can our brethren finally understand that. Let's do our part to see to it that it happens soon.